Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. As I was reflecting on this passage this week, it, uh, it brought to mind um, a story that many of you guys prayed very deeply for, um, paid close attention to, and that was last month uh, in Thailand, a situation that required an uh, international team of rescuers, literally hundreds of people coming into the country, as well as the Thailand Navy SEALs, um, to step into this situation where uh, 12 soccer team kids between ages 12 and 16 years old, as well as their assistant coach, became trapped in a cave. They were trapped in this cave literally two and a half miles from the entrance of the cave and well over a half a mile deep um, underground. And this happened because the sudden um, monsoon rains picked up and such a flash flood occurred that the waters rose and they were literally stuck in that portion of the cave um, that they were in. When they finally realized where these kids, where this coach was, they considered a lot of different options and they realized that things like trying to pump the water out um, was not going to work. They searched for different ways that they could get into the cave, natural openings above the ground that maybe they could get down to them. They couldn't find any. They considered the option of waiting, hoping that eventually the water would just recede on its own and they could literally walk out. But in fact, the opposite was the case. It was a, and is a worse than average rainy season and so the water continued to rise and the concern was twofold. One, that the complete lack of oxygen where they were trapped would actually suffocate all those in the cave, or the very real possibility that the flooding would continue and that this group would drown. Um, the only option, and a very dangerous option, that they ultimately arrived at was to send in the Thai Navy SEALs two at a time, and that they would go in carrying with them life-giving oxygen tanks, full diving gear, and that they would put this on each one of the kids, and one at a time, on a, in a five-hour trip each way, that a Navy SEAL followed by a kid in this full gear, and then another Navy SEAL, that they would navigate them through the water back out to the entrance where they began weeks earlier. Now, the concerns here were, were obvious, things like getting stuck in the cave, um, getting trapped, their, their oxygen coming loose, um, the fact that these kids have never done a dive in their lives, and so would they, would they panic, would they suffocate as well underwater in these dangerous, literally zero visibility conditions. But one at a time, they were able to lead these kids out of the cave. After 17 days in the cave, after a hour-by-hour, three-day effort, they got all 12 kids and the assistant coach out of the cave. Psalm 130 opens by saying, out of the depths, I cry. Out of the cave, Lord, I cry to you. Out of the flood, as I drown, Lord, I cry out to you the message becomes abundantly clear very quickly what the psalmist wants us to get, that on our own we too find ourselves in need of a rescue 
from drowning, in need of a redemption from our guilt, the weight of our sin. I want to offer you this morning four very clear, wonderful applications from Psalm 140, and those four are this. The forgiveness of God is a rescue from your drowning. It is a removal of your record. It is a resolution to your waiting, and it is a redemption to your life. So number one, the forgiveness, the forgiveness that we have in God is a rescue from your drowning. Once again, verses one and two say, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The depths very clearly mean dangerous and deep water. This is the perfect way to communicate this because the nation of Israel, whom this psalm was originally for, if you didn't know, Israelites pretty much, they don't do water. They don't do open sea. That's not their thing. They are a, not a sea-fearing people. They keep on the land for the most part. In fact, really the only times that we see them out on a boat is when they're having a massive crisis because the storms come up and they cry out to Jesus to calm the waters down. Anywhere in the Old Testament, anytime that you hear the sea mentioned, it is being used as a metaphor for death. It's being used as a metaphor for a separation from God. In fact, think about a scripture like this on the screen behind you. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol, which is the Old Testament word for death. I cried and you heard my voice. Who said that? It's interactive time. Go ahead. Who said that? Jonah. Remember his story? Where does he find himself? In a fish, underwater. Why do you think God would bring this man to repentance in that way? Well, among other things, because for an Israelite, it's like the worst case, scariest ever scenario. I'm underwater. I'm in a fish. That's Jonah's situation. And one of the themes that you get out of this terrifying situation, obviously, is Jonah communicates from the very beginning when he, he begins, as you recall, by jumping off the ship into the water to try and make the situation right. But he, he gives us this reality check that I got myself into this mess. It was my doing that put me in the depths, quite literally, of the water. That same theme is very evident here in Psalm 130 because the depths means sin. It means the guilt and the weight of our sin. See, unlike many other psalms that we have even studied this, this summer, this psalm, when it says the depths, it is not talking about illness. It's not talking about crisis. It's not talking about pain or godly suffering. It is talking about drowning in my sin. How do we know? Well, a, a quick, just cursory study of, of the psalm, you'll notice things like in verse 2, he cries out for mercy. In verse 3 and then in, in, in verse 8, he confesses his sin and that he is a sinner. In verse 4, he asks for and receives forgiveness. And in verse 7 and 8, he can't help but talk about God's love and God's redemption. You don't need those things unless you're a sinner. I don't need forgiveness. I don't need mercy if I'm perfect. But if I'm a broken person, I need that stuff. That's what I love right off the bat about this psalm is that he admits I'm guilty. I did it. It's my fault. 
I need help. And that oftentimes is our deepest problem today, isn't it? Me personally, our culture. See, when you reject God, you inevitably reject the reality of my personal sin. But this is not some sort of a new phenomenon or a new cultural issue, guys. From, from the book of Genesis, since the Garden of Eden, we have lived in a culture where we denied the reality of sin and we denied the seriousness of sin. That is the serpent's lie from day one of humanity. The, uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism speaks to this, this question fundamentally, question number 14. It asks a really good, really simple question. What is sin? It's important to know the answer. It says this, beef up on your vocabulary. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. If you don't follow the law of God, if you consciously break what he said to do, it's sin. At my dinner table with my four-year-old and my two-year-old, we keep it real simple. Sin is disobeying God. It's the same idea. Why? Because we live in this world under the authority of God's law. My table, my family, this city, this church, our world, whether we want it or not, we live under the authority of Creator God and His Word and His law. And even worse is the fact that every single time that we sin, we personally offend that God who gave us that good gift of His perfect law. Sin is serious. Listen to the New Testament. Romans chapter 3 speaks to this very clearly, which is actually, by the way, a quote of Old Testament Psalms when it says this, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Guys, that's depths. That sin has separated me from my creator God. I am hopeless without his forgiveness, without his rescue. Thank God the scripture doesn't end there, amen? The scripture continues. Number two, the forgiveness of God. The psalmist unpacks forgiveness. The forgiveness of God is a removal of your record. Listen to verses three and four. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That phrase, mark iniquities, in the New International Version, it's literally the phrase, record of sins. Record. The idea very clearly, if God were to tally up your sins, you would be crushed under the weight of your collected sins. Adolf Eichmann is a a name that maybe some of us will recall. He is remembered as the architect of the final solution, also known as the Holocaust, the murder of six million innocent Jews. This man was in charge. He ran the ghettos. He ran the extermination camps. But at the end of World War II, he fled. He escaped Germany and managed to make it all the way to Argentina where he hid where he avoided justice. 
There's a movie coming out this month called Operation Finale, and it follows the actions of the Jewish secret service who maintained his record of wrong. And they searched for him, and they searched for him. And in 1960, they found him. And they brought him back to Israel. And in Israel, he stood trial and ultimately received justice where he was executed in 1962. For 17 years, he hoped that his sin, who he was and what he had done, would somehow magically be forgotten. But the man had a record of wrong. You may hear that story and you may breathe a sigh of relief and go, I am nothing like that guy. Let me offer you James chapter 2, verse 10. that says, if you have broken even one of God's law, then you are guilty of breaking the entire law of God. It's a sobering thought. Who could stand, says the psalmist. Understand this. This is the bad news of life, of the scripture, of the word of God. Outside of Jesus Christ and salvation, God the Father holds your record of sin. It's a sobering thought. And yet here's the reality. That is why God offers forgiveness. God cannot and he will not simply ignore your sin. He will not put it away because it is wickedness. Rather, he does the only thing, the best thing that he possibly could do, which is he has made a way for our sins to be washed away, to be forgiven, for our record of sin to be removed. Praise God. We thank him for that. And so the question that you must have answered today, if you don't know it yet, is how do I get that forgiveness in my life? How can I know? The psalmist knows. He says, with you, God, there is forgiveness. Earlier this summer, Pastor Jerry walked us through Psalm 103, and I just want to read to you a couple verses that began to unpack more clearly from the Psalms who God is and how he forgives. Listen to Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, our record nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Forgiveness couple things you got to understand about forgiveness. Forgiveness is available to every single person, regardless of what you've done, regardless of the life that you have lived. It is for every sin, for every person. Forgiveness is available right now. There is no waiting period. There is nothing that you can do first. Stop trying to impress God or earn your way to salvation. The scripture says now forgiveness is with you. Present tense, immediately, today, you can receive forgiveness. 
And believer, if you are living your life in such a way that you are ignoring that forgiveness, stop living and stop acting as if you haven't been forgiveness. If you have been made free by the Son, then you are free indeed. And if you haven't yet been free, then today is the day. Why not come to him and say, with you, Lord, is forgiveness. I need it. I want more of you. Forgiveness, guys, is for anybody that wants it. If you want to be forgiven, all you have to do is ask. Trust in him, and you can be forgiven. And the beauty is he, he doesn't even leave us there. It says that forgiveness leads, leads us to godly fear. We talked about this several weeks ago. It doesn't mean that when you get forgiven, you're terrified of God. That's not what godly fear means at all. Throughout Psalms, throughout Proverbs, throughout the scripture, godly fear is this idea of humbly submitting to God's way of life. That when you've experienced, when you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you say, God, I tried it my way and it does not work. I don't want to do it my way anymore. I want to do it your way. And so I fear you. I trust you. I believe you. I submit to your way of life going forward. Have you experienced the forgiveness that only the Father offers? Number three, the forgiveness of God is a resolution to your waiting. A resolution. He says this, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. If you hadn't noticed, the Psalms, in fact, the Old Testament, a whole bunch, it uses repetition. It uses it a whole lot to make a point. It's the same way that in our culture more and more we use an exclamation point or we put 5,000 emojis after we make a statement. It's to make it very clear that we meant what we said. And that's what's going on here. He means it. He wants you to know, my waiting, my hoping is in one person. It's in the Lord. And so the question for us is the same. Who do you look to? What is your hope in? Especially when the reality and the weight and the burden of your sin pulls you down. How do you try and find relief? Where do you go with your guilt? There's only one real way. It's Christ. You'll notice too that this guy is not waiting on forgiveness he already has it. He just said, with you is forgiveness. He's not waiting. There is not a waiting period on forgiveness. He has been forgiven. What he wants more and more of is the presence of the Lord. What he desires is face to face with God himself. He longs for and is hungry for more and more of that daily experience of waking up knowing he's forgiven and living in the grace of God. What he longs for more and more is that one day in heaven that he will see literally the Lord face to face and worship him and know him in eternity forever and ever without sin. He is waiting and hungry, trusting and hoping in the Lord alone. And he says specifically, I trust because the word of God has promised it. That is what his hope is in. So he says, more than watchmen wait for the morning. It's a perfect illustration 
In that city, in any city, the watchmen, the guards, spend the night awake. And what they hope for, what they look forward to, what they believe will always come, is that in the morning, the sun is going to come. And so they wait with anticipation. Even if the night seems endless, they know, as the Psalms say, that joy comes in the morning. And so they wait like the watchman. He waits like the watchman. There's another facet, though, to this, to this waiting that the psalmist knew but hadn't fully grasped, and that's, that's the idea here, is that they were ultimately waiting on the Savior. They were waiting for the appearance of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. You know, this psalm was Martin Luther, the famous reformer in the 1500s. It was Martin Luther's favorite psalm. He even wrote a hymn about the psalm. He referred to Psalm 130 as a Pauline, or a a psalm of Paul, because Paul spent all of the New Testament writing about how salvation was by grace alone, and this psalm, even though it's in the Old Testament, screams that reality. See, Jesus was not fully revealed yet in Psalms, and yet every page of the Old Testament declares his name. Every page of the Old Testament is anticipating the coming of the one true Savior. Animal sacrifices never saved anybody in the Old Testament. Every single person in the Old Testament, they were looking forward to, anticipating, waiting for the appearance of the Messiah, of the Savior, the Christ. They were saved by the same Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, that we are today. The only difference is we look back and we rejoice in that moment in history after Jesus lived the perfect life for 33 years that he died on a cross and three days later rose again. They anticipated, we look back, and we all find ourselves saved by the same Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Jesus himself says at the end of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Then he, that is Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ, me, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Amen. The forgiveness of God. Number four, finally, the forgiveness of God is a redemption of your life. At one point or another, maybe it's today, every single one of us has found ourselves in need of redemption. And so listen to the final two verses. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. It is as if this guy's post has just gone viral when he says, oh, Israel. See, he wants his story, he wants his testimony to be declared and broadcast to the entire nation so that all would come to experience the same grace and love that he himself has already experienced. How powerful would that be? How amazing, how sweet would that be if your story 
went to the entire nation that you live in today, that all would come to hear and see how God had saved you personally, and that they might know at the same time that they too could be saved by the exact same Savior in the exact same way. That's our call, that the message might go forward. Two weeks ago, we were incredibly blessed to to be given by God our, our third child. We named her Evangeline. If y'all thought I wasn't going to work my daughter into my sermon this week, y'all crazy. (laughs) Evangeline, we picked that name because it has such power. It's the same word. It comes from the same Greek word that we get in our Bibles, the word gospel. It's this little Greek word, euangelion. It means good news. It means good news. In English, it's the, same, it's the same word that we get our word evangelism. That is, that believers changed by the grace of God would declare that we can't help but talk about the fact that there is good news that Jesus Christ has come. We named her that because it's our prayer that her life, that our lives, that our church might declare the good news. You've heard the bad news. Hear the good news. The only good news, if we as Christians bear the name of Jesus Christ, then it is our joy to be able to declare with everyone that we meet, with every opportunity, with every action and every word, the good news that God offers forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ. The psalmist here finishes by giving us two words just to to help us understand how that forgiveness comes about and what it even means. The first he gives us is steadfast love in verses seven and eight. Steadfast love comes from another word in Hebrew. It's a powerful word. It's the word chesed. And that word is one of those awesome words in the scripture that when you try and translate it, you can't really use just one word in English to help you to grasp it because it's such a huge and powerful word. And so in various places in the scripture, we have to use English words like loving kindness, unfailing love, mercy, faithfulness, graciousness, loyalty, and goodness. All of those words just to begin to wrap around that one single Hebrew word of chesed, of steadfast love. That is who God is. That though every single one of us has a record of wrong, a record of sins, that God has made a way for you to be forgiven. He doesn't ignore your sin. He takes it away. And that's why he ends with the second word, redemption. To be redeemed is literally that he rescued us from the depths of sin, that he delivered us from our guilt, that he literally bought our freedom from slavery, that he bought our freedom from death, that he paid for our freedom from justice that we deserved, that he literally paid, that he paid or, or atoned for our sin so that we could have a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. That relationship was perfect with Adam and Eve, and yet our sin broke it apart. Jesus makes a way to bring it back together. He bought us by an exchange. He made a payment. That's how he forgives. If you followed that story in Thailand, maybe you heard the name Saman Kunan. The man was 38 years old, a retired sergeant in the Thai Navy SEALs. 
he volunteered to come back out of retirement to go get those kids. He knew going in the dangers involved. He swam through the tunnels, carrying oxygen tanks, delivered those oxygen tanks to those kids, and on his way back out of the cave, his own oxygen tank failed, and he drowned. The man gave his life so that someone else could live. You understand what I'm saying? This is the forgiveness of God. God the Father sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who willingly volunteered, came out of heaven, out of perfection to live among us, clad in human flesh, lived here for 33 years, the perfect life with no sin, no breaking of God's law, knowing full well that the vilest scum on the planet would nail him to a cross for sins he did not commit. He willingly died. They could not kill him. He gave up his life on the cross. A payment for sin, a purchase of people who did not want him. How good is the grace of God that though we run away, that though we rebel, though we reject him, he sent his son to save us. Amen? God has sent his son Jesus. And so Jesus died on that cross. And in so doing, the sins of his people would go on him. He paid for our sins. And in that same moment, in this exchange, his perfect life of righteousness came on us. And by us, I mean anybody from all time who will believe in Jesus Christ and receive him as their Lord, as their Savior, in exchange. I've been worshiping this year too a song. I love this song. I just want to read to you some of the lyrics of this song. The song is called Hallelujah, All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you would not love me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. The chorus, hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Amen. Let's pray together. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Lord Jesus, you saved my life. Father, we declare those words of praise because we know, we admit that we are guilty and we admit that nothing we have ever tried has fixed it. God, we need salvation, we need it today, and we need it from you. And so, Father, I pray for those who may have gathered here this morning who have never experienced the goodness of forgiveness for the weight of their sin and guilt to be removed and to know that they can spend eternity with you in heaven and then that eternity begins the moment that they accept you as Savior. Father, may today be the day.
Lord, I pray for your people who are gathered here this morning. Would you lift them up with a joy afresh as they remember that they too were hopeless in a cave and had it not been for you coming to rescue, had it not been for you willingly giving your life to die for us, that we too would be dead on the bottom of the ocean still. Father, there's no glory in that for us. There's nothing that we did. It's not about us being special done amazing, powerful things, impressed you with our intellect or our righteousness. It's none of that. It's all Jesus. And so we give you all the praise. Father, we pray that with that same humility that we might echo and declare the good news of Jesus. That our family, that our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, our city leaders, our government leaders around the world, that the people of Japan, that they might know salvation in Jesus. We pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.